A reading from Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you too, and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will, make, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning is from the book of Acts. It is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive with many proofs after his suffering, many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the period of forty days and speaking to him the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard of for me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Judea and Samaria, I'm sorry, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intensely into the sky while he was going, Behold, two men in white clothing stood before them. They said also, Man of Galilee, why do you why are you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus has been taken from you into heaven and will return just in the same way that you have watched him go. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount of, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with a price of his wickedness and falling headlong burst open in the midst and all his intestines gushed out and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hekeldama or the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be desolate and let no one dwell in it and let no one take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who accompanied us all the time that Jesus, Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, that one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the things that you do and want to do in the midst of your people, your church. We ask this morning that you would set our heart and mind on those things, that you would open the scriptures to us in a new and a fresh way by your Holy Spirit, that we might learn to walk in the things that you have for us. We thank you together in Jesus' name. Amen. The, in a way, the whole story of the Bible could be framed in one question. How is it possible for God's glory and presence to dwell in the midst of humanity. A people dedicated to him who love him and worship him. How can those two things meet? Humanity, us, and God. That was God's intention in the garden, wasn't it? When it says that they walked with God during the cool of the day. And that was the intention of the Exodus, wasn't it? When God said in Exodus 19, Don't you recall how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to Mount Sinai? No. Israel? No. Where? Myself. I bore you on eagle's wings, says the Lord, and brought you to myself. That's God's purpose. But there's a problem that goes along with that purpose. And that is that human sin and rebellion and willfulness keep us from knowing the blessing that God has for us. And in a very real way, the Exodus story and the story from Jesus' Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, all the way to the coming of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost are meant to be read and understood on the background of Exodus. All of those events basically are painted on a canvas that was already primed in the Exodus story. And can only make sense if you follow along. It's the only way to really get a feel of what, of what Jesus Christ is doing. Because from the time of his Last Supper, 
really from the time of this triumphal entry, all the way till um, 60 days later almost, by the time you get from the 10th of Nisan to the um, Feast of Pentecost, that whole season is a season in which the whole nation of Israel, the Jewish people today, are retelling and reenacting the events of the Exodus. And there are some big markers that you have to have in order to really get a feel for it. Passover. We celebrated um, a couple weeks ago, but the Jewish uh, people are celebrating uh, just finishing yesterday. Passover is a time from which we were delivered from bondage by the death and the blood of a lamb. And this is so tied in with the work of Jesus that when he is standing on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 31, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, the transfigured Jesus, and he says, it says that Jesus was telling them about the exodus he was about to perform. That's literally what it means in the Greek. His departure he was about to perform in Jerusalem. His exodus. It's a very word he uses. Uh, the Feast of First Fruits, what we call Resurrection Sunday. So we celebrated that last week. Is that last week? It seems like a long time ago, but it was last week. Okay. Um, the, the Feast of First Fruits, which coincides with what we would call Resurrection Sunday, was the time at which the, the people of Israel came out of the Red Sea and the waters closed behind them like the waters of the tomb, forming judgment on their pursuers. At that same moment, when those waters would have been closing and the people coming out, that was the moment that our Lord Jesus was displayed as resurrected as the, the stone rolled away from the tomb. So we're getting now some idea of how we work together. Following that is the counting of the 50 days. And at the end of those, at, during that time, the story of those 50 days are the Jewish people journeying to Mount Sinai to worship the Lord. The Lord giving us the Torah and, and pledging for us to be his bride. And at that point, the Lord's presence is over Mount Sinai, above the Jewish people, above the nation of Israel, right? And they are standing beneath this shelter. The, the presence of the Lord is over and above them, but it's not within and among them. And the question still stands, how can the presence of God be in the midst of his people? And so what happens is at that point, the Lord calls Moses all the way back up Sinai again. He gets up to the top, and for days he's there receiving instructions that are the crowning jewels of what this is all about. It's the instructions for the tabernacle. And what the tabernacle is meant to do, what it's meant to be, is to, to finally fulfill that promise that was kind of teased out of the garden, which is that God's presence might be right there in the middle of the camp of Israel, right there with his people. It's meant to, and basically what Pentecost was supposed to be, the first Pentecost feast, was supposed to be the unveiling of that plan. But like the garden, things have a way of falling apart, especially when we involve people. <laughs> Um, the, the Lord is still telling Moses all the plans for the tabernacle, and he's trying to keep up with all this stuff, right? Writing all down, he's got these instructions. 
And the Lord says, you need to go down because those people, you know, I called them my people before, but Moses, your people, <laughs> they're worshiping a golden calf. They're making fools of themselves and they've already turned away from me. And so there they are, in Moses' absence, they've already fallen into idolatry. And God's judgment is poured out against the, the idol and the false worshipers. And the next day, Moses goes up once more in order to intercede on behalf of the people. And basically, Moses prays, Lord, if you won't show up, if you can't find a way to, to put your presence in our midst, then we won't go up at all. And if you plan to blot these people out of the book of life, then blot me out too. Some serious intercession. And Moses is willing to risk everything for the presence of the Lord to dwell in the midst of God's people. But the Lord is unwilling. He creates a provisional distance. And so what happens is the presence of the Lord is now resting outside the camp. Moses pitches a tent out far away from the camp of Israel. And the presence of the Lord comes there every time people come to seek him. And you actually have to leave the camp of the people of God in order to meet the presence of God. And every time you go, you've got a sense, oh, I'm not being that way. I ought to be able to worship God and seek him and know him right here. I ought to be able to know who he is with his people. Why would we have to go outside of this? This is where it should be. Why would we have to go outside? But sometimes God's absence is our protection. Sometimes God is absent for our safety. And the only way that they can encounter the Lord was to leave the camp. And the glory of the Lord, the text says, was so great that when, when the people, um, when someone went out to seek the Lord and Moses and, and Joshua were there, the glory would come down to the tent and it would be so powerful that the people inside their tents, inside the distant camp would say the glory. They'd come out and fall on their faces and worship the Lord. The absence of the presence, the absence of the presence has rendered God's people brokenhearted. And this is a good indicator. The loss of God's presence with them has had such an effect that they strip off their ornaments and lay them aside. It's evident as they bow in the direction of that distant tent in worship. And it's, it's, it's evident in another way, in a, a text just before what, we, what uh, Pastor Hannah read for us this morning. It says that, that Moses went up to intercede again with the Lord and he came back down and his face was shining, and that the people begged him, cover up your face, because the glory would fade. And it seems like the wording is out of order. It seems like, they, are they afraid? And that's how we usually take it. Are they afraid of his shining face? It's so, it's so crazy that his face is like on fire and they can't stand it. I don't think so, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is this. They asked Moses to cover up his face because the glory is fading. They say, Moses, your face reminds us of what we're supposed to have. Cover it up. 
Because we don't want to see it fade because it will remind us of what we did wrong. There are people who are heart sick and the fading glory was disturbing to them. I wonder if, if we have the same intensity as a church, as a community, as people in our lives. Do we, do we long to see God's glory? Do we long to see Him glorified in our midst? Do we long for, do we have a heartbeat for other people coming to know Him, encountering who He is? Perhaps you talk with people who are sick or hurting or lonely or struggling with addiction. And you listen to them and you think, if they could just have the presence of God in their lives, they could know peace and hope and healing. Or maybe you are sick and lonely, struggling with addiction, going through great difficulty, and thinking, if God's presence, if there were just some way that God's presence could be with me, if there were some way that He could draw near to me, Perhaps you wish that there was someone who would go up the mountain and plead for you. Who would plead that God's presence could come and dwell. Someone who could set things right. If this is what Pentecost is, and if this is what God's purpose is, if God's purpose is to put His presence with His people, and Pentecost is a reminder of our failure for that to happen, then every time we celebrate Pentecost, what we're doing is we are once again reenacting a hope that this time it'll happen. That this time, God's presence will fall on us and stand with us. There's a word for the setting that things are right. And it's tikkun. It's a Hebrew word. Tikkun means to settle a debt to settle an argument or a disagreement. And the disciples are expecting this from Jesus in a way. They say that if the word is, if you translate it into Greek, it means restore, right? There's, they ask, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no, it's not time for that. It's time for a tikkun, but it's a different kind of tikkun that God is about. You see, if you go back and you trace everything that Jesus has been doing since he rose from the dead, what he's been doing is he's been restoring all these broken relationships. He's going to deal with all the regrets connected with the crucifixion. He's going to deal with Peter and Peter's shame. He's going to deal with Judas and Judas' absence from the group. He's going to deal with the disciples' determination to flee and to hide. That's Pastor Hannah shared with us last week. All these things, he's going to deal with Thomas who fails to believe. All these things require some kind of tikkun, some kind of setting right. And it's amazing to me that for all of the people who did things wrong in the days of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that it's Jesus who goes to make things right. I hope we get this. I hope we, we, we catch this. That Jesus takes the initiative to reconcile his disciples. That this is the profound insanity of the love of God for you. That, that what happens here is that innocent takes the initiative to restore the guilty. 
We, we expect and we wait for the person who's offended us to come to us in order to forgive them. But when we offended God, and when we offend God, it's He's the one who comes knocking on our door. It's our offense. And He comes and He seeks us. And this is why Christ's restoring work is saturated with equal parts of tears and wonder. Because what we do time and time again is we turn our back on Him only to find that He's facing us. <laughs> Each time we turn around, there he is. There needs to be a tacoon, and that tacoon, that setting of right, comes from God. There's another thing that needs to happen, and the Hebrew word here is teshuva. It means repentance, but literally what it means is to turn around and head the other direction. You think about in John 21, Jesus meets with Peter, Thinking about Peter's three denials of Jesus. And Jesus makes breakfast for them while they're out in the boat and they come to shore. And there Jesus is with some, some fish on the barbie. And, and Peter's got to think, I know who that is and I don't want to go up there. Last time he saw me, I was saying, I don't even know the man. But in anticipation of their first confrontation, Jesus does not bring together a jury. He doesn't prepare a case. He makes breakfast. And then three times, to set things right with Peter. Three times, for each of those times that Peter denied him, Jesus gets Peter to say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. Lord, you know everything you know. I love you. It's It's teshuva. It's a turning away. It's learning a new way. It's having Jesus teach us a new way of being. Jesus leads Peter in this way of repentance, this way of tears that replaces our pride. If you want to reconcile God's divine presence, the first thing you need is the reconciling work of God in your life. The first thing we need is the reconciling work of God in our life as a community. But the next thing we need is teshuva, this repentance. It's letting Jesus take us in a new way and forsaking two old paths that are too comfortable for all of us. They seem like they're opposites, but they're part of the same thing. The paths of pride, Lord, I don't need you. I can do it myself. That's where Peter started. <laughs> uh, but the other one is similar to it. It's not pride, but it is in a sense. It's the path of self-pity. Lord, I've done everything wrong. To, certainly you can't use me anymore. I'll just stay back while you're cooking breakfast and I won't look at you. And Jesus says, come and sit down and tell me you love me. And everything will be set right. We have to enter into the way of trusting Jesus. There's another thing that we have to do and that is to set about seeking the Lord. 
On the night before Pentecost, there is a tradition that's called, interestingly, cocoons. We'll mark that day when it arrives. What it is, is a Bible study. You spend all night the, before the day that Pentecost fully arrives. You spend all night studying the Torah and praying together. And the study is meant to touch each book of the Torah. And should weave in and out of all of the books of the Torah. And what we're doing when we do that is we anticipate the moment that Moses came down from Mount Sinai. And when he came down, that, that we had it wrong, that we were worshiping this calf. And what Tikkun is meant to do is to set that wrong right. It's basically a way of expressing this idea. Lord, when you came the first time to place your presence in our midst, by the instruction of your word, we failed. Maybe this time, maybe this time, we be ready and our hearts be right to receive you. That's what Tikkun is saying. And basically what Pentecost was, every year, year after year, was the Jewish people saying basically together, Lord, may we be ready this time so that your presence can dwell in our midst once again. But every, Pente every Pentecost renewed the possibility of the Lord dwelling among his people. And in the upper room, as 120 women and men, all disciples of Jesus were gathered. And after they had seen him ascend, they were there for 10 days. And they heard him say, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. As they were seeking the Lord day and night, perhaps they were keeping to whom? In a very real sense. Keeping that tradition that says, Lord, may, our present, may your presence come among your people this time. Because there's something worse than not knowing the presence of the Lord. And that's having experienced the presence of the Lord and now experiencing his absence. But Judas, at the table, not Iscariot, asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? They hoped that others would come to know Jesus and experience him as the presence of God in the midst of his people. But now that Jesus had ascended and gone into heaven, was it all lost? Was that it? What did his promises of the Spirit mean? Could it be that on this Pentecost, the people would be ready for the presence? Would God's glory finally rest in the midst of his people? If the problem of God's presence among us is sin, then our part involves three things we've heard about. Repentance, restoration, and seeking the Lord. But our hope is wrapped up in this idea that there's one who went outside the camp to plead for us. There's one who ascended the holy mountain to intercede for us. That at the end of the day, there's things that we've got to do. But there's things that only God could do for us. And he did them for us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Because if I go, I'll send to you another comforter. I'll send you a helper, my Holy Spirit, who will live with you forever. The urgent, the urgent business that Jesus left Jerusalem for was to send his Spirit to us. And so in the end, there's things that each and all of us need to do. But there's things that we can't do that only God can do. Ultimately, we receive the glory and presence of God in our midst. 
Because Jesus has done it for us. Do we need repentance? Yes. Do we need setting things aright? Yes. Do we need to seek the Lord? Yes. Is that why God blesses us? No. God blesses us with His presence because He promised to. And if we want to be ready to receive the fullness of what He has for us, these are the things He calls us to. These things that we're talking about have nothing to do with why God gives, but they do have everything to do with how we receive. So here's what's on my heart and on my mind. I believe that God wants to work out in our midst. I believe that there is so much more for us than we can ask, imagine, or think. And what I want us to do, you know, I, I, I'm always skeptical of myself when I say, do a whole lot more. But what I want us to do, would you add 10 minutes a day to your prayer time? For some of you, that was simple. For some of you, that's insanity because your days are squashed. And I understand that. But would you consider taking 10 minutes a day aside just to pray and seek God for each other, for this community, for the things that God wants to do? Ask that God would, would bless, that He would guide, that He would lead. Pray for those who are supposed to be here who aren't here yet. Because there's a whole generation of people. Pray for those that we're raising up because there's a generation of people that's being raised in this community now that are our future leaders. Just pray and seek God. An additional 10 minutes a day, I know probably some of you spend a lot more praying for this community than 10 minutes a day. And thank you and bless you but if you add 10 more minutes to that, 50 minutes a week to match up for the 50 days of Pentecost, let's seek the Lord and see what he'll do. It was a, a, a little group in an upper room who gathered to seek the Lord. There were 1.5 million people outside and 120 in an upper room and it didn't seem like they could make a difference. But they had something that was significant. They had the promises of God that he would send his presence with them. We might see an outdoor band in this little room. But we have something that's remarkable. We have the promises of God. And there's no telling if we're to seek him what he might do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, throughout those 40 days before you ascended into heaven, that you spoke to us the things of the kingdom. Help us to take what we've heard and learned and put it to practice now. To seek ways to grow in you. To seek ways to grow as a community. To seek the things of you that you have for us. Not to be overcome with either pride or, or despair, but instead to trust in you. Not looking at our smallness, but looking at your greatness. Knowing that you can do more than we can ask or think through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen.